Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bradley Lectures podcast. I'm Tal Fortgang. This week, Americans will celebrate, well, many of you may not yet know to celebrate, but I'd recommend raising a glass this year to Juneteenth, also known as Freedom Day, the celebration of the end of slavery in the United States. We've got just the Bradley Lecture to honor the day in which our nation took a giant leap in extirpating its original sin. Orlando Patterson came to AEI in November of 1993 to talk about the relationship between slavery and freedom and how Western culture was built on those two principles and the dialectic they form. Talking about slavery and the contradictions inherent in the American founding is a difficult and confusing undertaking, but Patterson, a professor of sociology at Harvard, does so deftly and disinterestedly. In doing so, he illuminates that quintessentially American word, freedom, without being cynical about its application or pessimistic about whether Americans of all colors can truly be free. Now, before we begin the lecture, I'd like to encourage all our listeners to follow us on Twitter at Bradley Lectures to stay up to date on all our podcasts and what big questions we're thinking about. And be sure to like, comment on, and subscribe to the Bradley Lectures podcast wherever you're listening if you like this very important project and want to support us in any way. With that, here's Orlando Patterson's 1993 lecture, Free at Last, How Slavery Begat Freedom. Look, we're at the end of the Cold War, and we won. That victory was not just a victory of the West. That victory was a victory for the most fundamental ideal value that has informed Western civilization. The ideal we cherish, the ideal we uh, call upon most often, the ideal we appeal to most often in justifying whatever it is we want to justify, namely uh, freedom. According to Freedom House, who tracks um, the spread and diffusion of freedom from year to year, uh, these are wonderful times for anyone who believes in and cherishes freedom. Of the 4.5 billion people in the world, the majority now declare themselves, or their leaders declare themselves, to be for freedom. It's a time to celebrate, one would think. Uh, it's a time to bask in the glow of victory. But there are some disturbing signs, or at least some signs which we ought to take a closer look at. One is reported by Freedom House itself in its most recent um, annual surveys. It points out that there's a disturbing tendency towards some instability in the um, uh, ratings. Countries seem to pop up and down in, the, uh, in their one to seven scale of freedom. One year, a country seems to be designated very free. The next year, it seems as if they're out of the running and gone back to bad ways. Just an instability. There's a problem in Eastern Europe where after the initial euphoria, things are not going quite the way we thought it was going to go. First thing several nations use with their, their freedom to do is to sort of um, beat up on the um, <laughs> freedom of other people and the disaster in um, Yugoslavia is only one such case. And there was what happened in Vienna earlier this year, the disaster in Vienna. That conference, for those of you who didn't know, sort of um, earlier this year, was called by the United Nations, great expense. All the nations of the world were together and um, for another, a second great 
declaration of um, human rights to sort of consolidate the first great declaration in the 40s. And in many ways, this conference was almost like a, a sort of um, victory parade for the West. Sort of unfinished business in the 40s to be taken care of, uh, and uh, as the, uh, one expected the whole world to turn up uh, to celebrate freedom and to not just celebrate it, but to express commitment in a renewed declaration of human rights. Well, you all read the newspapers in this town, and you may know what happened in Vienna. The West was taken completely by surprise because what the West went, and were the major Western countries, including our own, went quite unprepared because we went there expecting to, you know, be pat on the shoulder and said, you know, there, there, you won, isn't it wonderful? Instead, what they confronted was the Bangkok Declaration. The <laughs> Bangkok Declaration is one of those strange, strange documents, strange in the sense of it is one of the oddest assortment of bedfellows who um, brought it together. The Bangkok Declaration was uh, basically a statement which had been prepared in a previous conference by several non-Western countries in preparation for the um, uh, Vienna meeting. And the bedfellows involved the strangest assortment of people. What they had in common was a strong opposition to the whole drift and sentiment and thrust of the Vienna meeting. And they effectively sort of subverted the whole intent of, the, uh, uh, of that conference. So even though freedom, you may think, has won, it certainly didn't win that round. Now, as a student of freedom, I followed all of this very carefully. And I noted the arguments which were used by the, let us call them the Bangkok group. Their argument is that, first, freedom is not a universal value. Freedom is a Western value. And the assumption of universalism is erroneous. They have no proof that this is a universal human value, a commitment. And the call to human rights is, is, an eth is ethnocentric and presumptuous on the part of the West, which is attempting to impose its value on the rest of the world. That was one, one argument or point to that effect. It's a Western concept that is not universal. That further, there are other values which are just as important as freedom and perhaps more important. And that indeed, perhaps the most important human right is not the rights which the West insists on defending, freedom of speech, individual uh, respect for property, participatory democracy, and so on, but the right to development. And so they insisted that this declaration um, was not only untimely, but um, a form of Western imperialism. I, as you can imagine, having spent the last uh, decade and more than a decade working on the problem of freedom, was fascinated with all of this, but very ambivalent, and really had a real problem. I tell you what my problem was. My problem was that, although I knew there was a great deal of cynicism behind these arguments, uh, of a gang of very authoritarian leaders, in fact, seeing this as a way of, um, if you like, delegitimizing 
an ideology which threatened their position. Unfortunately, the arguments were largely correct because the truth is that it is a Western concept. One, is, one assumption has to do with this sort of philosophical psychology of freedom. It's best expressed in a great, great phrase of Locke. This is written in the hearts of men. The assumption is that freedom, we're born with freedom. It's part of the human condition to be free. That it's, it, it's to, to be human then, is to desire freedom. It's written in our hearts. It's a wonderful term. This is part of the essential ideology of the West, that you're born with it. But know the implication of that. If it's something you're born with, it's stupid to ask where, it came, where did it come from. You just assume it's there in, as part of the human condition. Little babies have it. Just let them grow up. They'll start saying, wow, I want to be free. There's also a sociopolitical assumption in our discourse on freedom, which informs a great deal of our policies and our attitudes, which to some extent is very closely related to the psychological, philosophical assumption. It's the fact that all societies would desire freedom if only they had the opportunity to express it. In other words, take any society, take any non-Western society, China, uh, Indonesia, uh, Algeria, that the reason why you do not witness freedom is because of repressive measures and institutions. And therefore, all you have to do is to remove these and freedom will come welling up. That's another fundamental assumption, a universalist assumption in our attitudes. This is essential for all values which we hold and which we cherish. But the first thing you note, if you make the most cursory review of human societies in history, is that these assumptions simply have no foundation whatever, in fact. None. The vast majority of human societies the course of their long histories have not demonstrated, and one would expect that at some time, during some little period, some little window of, uh, of history would indicate in these other societies a sort of passion for freedom. There's no evidence that outside of the West, until contact with the West, that this is ever the case. Indeed, etymological research points out the fact that in the vast majority of languages before contact with the West, there is not even a word for freedom. Eventually, of course, people will come up with a word. Now, what's very interesting is to see what the, what the literal meaning of the word which people come up with when they're asked, well, by the typical dictionary writer or missionary or whatever, well, come on, you've got a word for freedom. Tell me what it is. I mean, yeah, I don't have time to waste here. It's, it's very intriguing. In the Japanese case, which is my favorite, is, is, is typical. If it's not universal, if it's not, as our dearly beloved Locke insists, written on the hearts of men, where did it come from? A century ago, Lincoln asked the question, as many of you know, um, or complained, rather, that the world has never had a good definition of the word liberty. And um, the situation is a little better now, uh, I hope, but uh, many people still find it problematic. And the problem is that people often look to philosophers rather than look to what I've done, which is my question is, what does the ordinary person, an extraordinary person, what do they think about freedom? What does it mean? Uh, what have I found? It's a single concept, but it's a composite one. It's a configuration of three inextricable related ideas. It's a triad, and I've used the metaphor of a musical chord. 
to define what I mean by freedom is a triad. There's three notes which you can listen to separately. What are these three notes? These three closely associated ideas which have always been there. First, the one which you're most familiar with, what I call simply personal freedom, condition of not being coerced or restrained by another person in doing something desired on one side and the conviction that one can do as one pleases. Um, the second element of freedom, the second note, is one may use several terms for it, organic, I call it sovereignal. This kind of freedom assumes a hierarchical ordering of human relationships in which power is concentrated at the top. And the most free person is the person who is most capable of um, exercising his will. And if you think about it for a minute, it makes sense. You're free to the degree that you can do things, that you exercise power, that you're able to realize your will. Traditionally and historically, your will over others. And there's never any contradiction seen, although we now consider it almost obscene, um, in the idea that one is free to the degree that one can dominate other persons. This was the dominant view among the Greeks, and it remained a central idea in the Western notion of freedom right up to modern times. It's, it's, it's an, it's <laughs> I have real problems with this with audiences, especially since I don't usually have enough time to sort of get into this, the details of it, because in America in particular, we've rejected this, we've wiped this view of freedom out of the semantic field, let us say, put it that way, so much that people are often shocked to learn, and in fact often uh, want to shoot the messenger by suggesting that I'm the one who's inventing this fiction about freedom. In fact, I'm merely reporting the idea that one is free to the degree that one has power and one can exercise power over others, as well as exercising one power of one society over others. The Athenians thought that their good part of their freedom was their freedom to dominate others. And um, the Romans had that view too. And it's been an important part of the Western idea until modern times. The third element of freedom, the third note in the card, is of course what I, civic freedom, democracy. The, the capacity of all adult members to participate equally in the political life of one society. These three relationships have, for most of the history of freedom, been seen as being tightly held together. This point is very important. They are also intimately linked conceptually. There's a simple way of showing conceptually how these three ideas, these three notes in this cultural chord fits together. And it's the concept of power. Power, surprising that it may sound, is central to the notion of freedom. So if you look at the three notes again, we are free to the degree that others do not exercise power over us. We only exercise power over ourselves. We're free from the power of others. We're free, however, to the degree that we are empowered and have power to do what we want, to realize our will, to realize our goals, to realize ourselves. So we're freedom to exercise power, including, as I said, for a long period of human uh, uh, Western history, power over others, but now we express it more in terms of empowerment, that is, power over ourselves. And thirdly, we're free to the degree that we share in the collective power, which as a group we create together. It's a powerful idea, both in individually and in their configuration. How did the West construct this idea, and why was it peculiarly a Western one? In searching for an answer to this question, 
why, how did this strange set of ideas come about in the first place, especially personal freedom? And think about it for a minute. If you can sort of conduct an imaginary experiment, get out of your American cultural mode, and think about it from the point of view of a non-Westerner. It's a pretty strange thing to say that the most important thing to me is that no one is that I'm free from others. For most of human society, that's considered a crazy, dangerous idea. In most human cultures, for most of human history, what people wanted was to be integrated into society, to be protected by more powerful people. And the idea that you want to be away from people, isolated, independent, by yourself, is considered a damn dangerous and a crazy idea. And when you think about it in its most negative form, that you're just free to the degree that, you know, in a purely negative sense, no content, whatever, not for, for anyone, not to exercise any constraint over me. Think about it for a minute uh, in non-Western terms, if you can. That's a strange idea. And freedom is a very strange idea to most human societies, which emphasize integration, protection, being in a network of kinship relations, being in a web of relationships, a Chinese clan, so the, the importance of filial connection, the importance of the harmony of heaven and earth, those kind of ideas, honor, sort of fighting for one's group, glory, dying for one's country, as the Japanese did until, of course, they met the Americans. These ideas are the powerful ideas which informed human culture. And in that context, the idea that one of the most sublime things to have is to say, I'm not constrained by others, it's a damn crazy idea. So the more you think about it, the more it becomes a serious problem. My argument is that the three basic notes of freedom emerged in the experience, which is slavery. The institution of slavery preceded freedom. And in fact, if you think about it, you see why slavery becomes so important. A slave is someone who's socially dead, quintessentially one who's uprooted, torn from the bosom of his or her, usually her, community, is the surrogate of another, has no will, the property of another can be bought, sold, in 99% of cases can be killed with impunity. You bring someone in and tell them they're socially dead, they're nothing, obviously you ask them to work for you and have a problem motivating such a person. But there's a self-correcting, building self-correction in the institution. The motivation is obvious. You've created a socially dead person, so you say to them, well, look, if you really work well and hard, you will be made free. Meaning simply that you'll no longer be, uh, I'll no longer be, have absolute power over you. But also, that slave, slavery did something else, two other things. It created isolated absolute power of one person over another, which is unusual in human societies. And it also did a third thing. It created the idea of the native group being free. Now, in traditional, typical tribal situations, whether you're you know, a Dane or a Viking or a, a sort of German or an Igbo or what have you, there's no sense that you're free at all. I mean, that idea becomes only meaningful when you bring into your armed society a group of people who are defined as slaves. And then, then the you, the native, becomes, in, a, in contradistinctive terms, free, the free group, bonded together. Now, slavery existed all over the world, so if um, this is true, one would expect to find it all over the world. In fact, one doesn't. And again, if you think about it for a minute, you'll see why. To have an idea is one thing, to institutionalize it is another. 
why was it that with the rise of Greece itself, you had the rise of this value? And this is really important. For the first time in human history, you had not just a slave society, but a large-scale slave society. That is to say, one in which large numbers of people were brought in to structurally transform the society in the creation of that urban um, civilization. And the process creating enormous disruption and tremendous changes. And one can see quite clearly a clear relationship between the rise of slavery and uh, the rise of the passion for freedom and the celebration of freedom as a value. With the urban civilization of Greece and the large-scale slavery, you had this extraordinary situation where large numbers of people could enter the metic class, a whole category of persons, the metics were now created, who, uh, so it's, and they became, in many ways, the entrepreneurs of the urban area. In many ways, the urban elite was sort of simply too um, preoccupied with its honorific interests, warfare and so on, to get involved, its hands dirty with trade. And if you read the Greek views of attitudes toward labor, uh, in, in which they included things we don't consider labor today, our architecture and so on, you can see why this, you, there's, a, there's, a, there's a space, an opening for the freedmen then for the first time a society in which significant proportions demographically of people experienced this thing freedom, loved it and cherished it, but also had a social space and an economic space to become important members of a society. You also had, you can see clearly, the development of a special relationship between the free farmers, native farmers, who were outraged by this development, absolutely outraged, and constantly struggling themselves for greater economic participation in the new economy, and who in the end, um, in a sense, settled for uh, was a sort of a bond of solidarity in the emerging centralized state. And democracy grew out of this. And that bond of solidarity between the small farmer and slaveholder elite reflected in the rights of citizenship and participation in the political culture. Many of you may think that uh, the, the great Greek thinkers, the Plato's and Aristotle, celebrated this idea as not so, not so, not so. They were hostile to this idea. They did two things. They celebrated more the elite conception of freedom as the expression of power, virtue, valor, uh, the ability to protect the state, the ability to expand the collective ego of the state in dominating other people. And um, that idea of freedom is power. But they did something else, which is very important in the history of freedom. Working along the principle that if you can't join them, you appropriate them. Outer freedom is not the real thing. The really real freedom, inner freedom, elite notion of freedom, that you're free to the degree that you exercise control over others, both within your society and control over other states. So you have the idea that true freedom it's not only an internal thing, but it draws upon the outer, our more aristocratic notion of freedom as the exercise of the mind, which is like a master, over the slave. And therein was born something which has become central to the Western notion of freedom, the idea of inner freedom. Other philosophers also sort of met him, so to speak, saying, okay, we agree that true freedom is inner freedom, but freedom is inner liberation. Well, the point I want to emphasize in terms of the Western discourse on freedom and the Western conception of freedom is that this inner freedom is an integral part of it. Now, 
there's a very strange view about this from the very beginning. And that idea of an inner freedom becomes central. And you can't separate it because the next great moment, of course, is Rome. And in Rome, what you got was some an even more large-scale slave society, the greatest slave system in the history of the world, much, much, on a much greater scale than the U.S. South. Most of you expressed surprise that Rome was a slave society in, in all respects far more so than the U.S. South because um, not only was it rural, agricultural system dominated by plantations of a size, many are very often much greater than the typical southern plantation. And these are straight plantations of brutality not known in the south. But it's urban economy that's dominated by slaves. And it's imperial civil service for the first two centuries of the empire that's dominated by slaves. The Roman economy was totally dominated by slaves, having to do with Roman law, some problems in Roman law. Roman law never developed the law of agency. Oh, that may be a backward way of putting it. Roman law did not need to develop the law of agency. And the way they solved the problem was very simply by using the peculium and by um, <coughs> using the slave, your slave, and also your freedman as your agent. So your slave, literally, because he's an extension of you, he could represent you much more than your brother could. So you know, when your slave said, I signed this piece of paper, he was, it was literally you signing it. That plus the honorific emphasis of Roman society, in which they were, in theory, not supposed to engage in all the very lucrative schemes that you're about, um, led to the situation in which slaves became very, very important. And that became central, the idea of simply having achieved freedom and having had the guts and the wits to do it. So almost, this is almost a, 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 a seen as a, um, something wonderful to have been a slave, to have rose up from slavery, to have achieved your freedom, and to have become wealthy. So you get then this extraordinary situation where freedom became the dominant value among the mass of people. And the, they were the majority of the population. But what do we have here? We have a situation in which the most important secular value of the people who were remaking the religion was to be free, free in the most literal sense. And what one sees happening is something unique in the history of religions. The theology of Christianity is the only theology which, in a sense, freedom is central, because that's what it did. In a sense, drawing on the already established tradition of interjecting the notion of freedom, develop the idea it used as its metaphoric source what was central to the people, to the congregation. It simply lifted that idea and internalized it. The central notion of Christianity is redemption. Redemption literally means, come from the Latin word, redemptio, which literally means to buy someone out of slavery. And so the whole experience of the Pauline Christology became then a complete reinterpretation of the early Easter theology uh, of the Jerusalem um, group, completely reinterpreted it in this powerful way. The whole metaphor that, that, that Jesus' death was a salvific act which brought you out of spiritual slavery into freedom. Thank you for listening to the Bradley Lectures podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. The Bradley Lectures were given for more than a quarter century at AEI thanks to the generous sponsorship of the Lyon and Harry Bradley Foundation. AEI Senior Fellow Carlin Bowman and I hope you enjoy our revival of these lectures. If you do, 
please show your support by giving us a like and a comment and subscribing to our channel. And stay tuned for new episodes every other Monday as we bring the wisdom of the recent past to the most pressing issues of the present. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time on the Bradley Lectures Podcast.